Reading from 1 Samuel. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. The Word of God for the world. So Samuel is at it again. He's been told by the Lord, as we just heard, to go to the house of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, to anoint the next king. Funny enough, there still happens to be a king, which doesn't go over so well. In fact, this act is quite treasonous. So Samuel's a little bit afraid. And I think it's funny that he goes in what I assume is a cover to make sacrifice. 
make sacrifice, he says, but his real reason for coming, as we know, is to anoint the next king. So there's a bit of trembling when Samuel comes. We don't really know why. Perhaps they're afraid of this one who maybe they heard rumors that he was going to anoint a king. But he comes, and a great, what I like to say, the parade begins, the parade of sons. And the eldest one comes out, and Samuel thinks, ah, this is the one. Just by looking at him, by the way. And he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, of course, it's possible that he thought this because in the ancient Near East culture, the eldest son was the favored son to be king. It's understandable that naturally he would think that of Eliab as God's chosen. But we have a little history here, even last week as we looked at Samuel. Samuel should have learned a thing or two. Poor Samuel. He sees Eliab and thinks he's handsome and tall, assumably, and that this is God's chosen. But did you know these were the very qualities that Saul had? And why one of part of why he was chosen. Samuel apparently hadn't learned yet. So the Lord quickly admonishes him, saying, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see, they look on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. I prefer the common English Bible translation here. Hear, hear it a little differently. Have no regard for his appearance or stature because I haven't selected him. God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. And yet, the subsequent six sons come out, and Samuel sort of wonders, and yet the Lord keeps saying, no, not this one. And the youngest son, David, out with the sheep, is not even considered. He didn't even get to make the trip. He didn't get to make the parade. And how confusing, though, for Samuel, who was told by God in verse 1, if you look at it, that the king would provide... a the king he would provide would be among the sons. So, assumably, Samuel probably thought the king was among the sons that were presented. I don't know about you, if I was Samuel, I would, discerning the Lord's will, I would have felt a nudge toward one of the ones that was there. Instead of thinking, well, maybe he has other sons. I would not have had that much faith. And yet, this is exactly what Samuel does. He says, are there other sons? And of course, as we know the story, David is brought from the sheep and comes. I love this story because so many times we are the same as Samuel. How many times are things that God wants to do in our lives not even on our radar? Have you had those experiences? <laughs> I see some hands. 
that God wants to do something in our life that we have no concept of. It's not on our radar at all. Or, again, sort of discerning God's will, we may say to God, okay, here's seven ideas that I have, a la the seven sons. Which one of these, O oh God, is it that you want me to do? But the one thing God wants us to do is not even on our list. God seems to be a God of surprises, selecting the most unexpected. At Free For All, the time when we gather before Sunday to discuss the upcoming text, Glenda said, it seems that kingdom people should expect the unexpected. Truly, as kingdom people, as we continue in this series, today the focus is cultivating sight that is not limited to the visible eye. Expecting the unexpected, the thing not on our list. Developing spiritual insight, for humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. In many ways, if you were here last week, we looked at Samuel who didn't want to have a king, and yet he warned the people, and they were determined to have an earthly king and not follow Yahweh, in part for the very same reason, because they were relying on physical sight. It doesn't take much, right, to realize we haven't evolved much from this. How many stars don't fit our cultural norms of beauty. Not many. Or even our reality, right? Reality stars. So realistic. Or politicians, for that matter. The rise of JFK or Bill Clinton or Sarah Palin. You can't tell me that appearance didn't have something to do with that. We, too, are drawn to the beautiful, the strong, the GQ, the put-together, the color-coordinated, the fit and fabulous. At Free For All, Kathleen said, what this passage ultimately is about is teaching us about discernment. Discernment is about seeing with God's eyes. And unfortunately, we humans apparently don't look at things like God does normally. As Herb says, we are still spiritually immature. As someone else said, still drinking milk. After all, Samuel's own call story, remember, in the middle of the night, should have reminded him, as Nita said, that God still works in surprising ways. Seeing is the essence of discernment. Seeing is the essence of discernment. And interestingly, Carla Suamala, she's a professor of religion from Luther College, points out that the word seeing appears some eight times in this text, beginning with verse 1. For when God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, the Hebrew literally reads, I have seen among his sons a king for myself. 
And then as Suamala says, the passage uses wordplay that we don't get, contrasting the human seeing from the God seeing. Of course, we get that a little bit in that the humans see outward appearance and God sees the heart. And then finally, I thought this was interesting. When David arrives, the Hebrew literally says he is good for seeing. Good for seeing. We totally miss that. It seems to imply that God sees something in David at this point that no one else saw. Thanks be to God. That's us. Yes. Right? Rough around the edges. On the one hand, you might look back. If you look at your text, your Hebrew scriptures, you'll notice the judges, the prophets, the kings, and the leaders, and the disciples in the New Testament are not the well-qualified. They're not the first choice given our typical standards. Even Israel itself. Listen to the Israel wasn't chosen because they were awesome. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 says, Yahweh chose Israel not because they were so numerous or had special qualifications, but because Yahweh loved them. That's why God chose Israel. Many times God chooses those people that are rough around the edges to do God's will, like Rahab, the prostitute. Whoa, what? David, yes. Did we know? Do we remember his story following through of murder and adultery? The woman at the well, loose, despised. Peter, betrayer. And on and on. Thanks be to God that God uses us. As one says, good things come in unlikely wrappings and from unlikely origins. It's true. Part of learning how to see is looking at those we would normally only give a glance at or worse, sort of disdain or have suspicion toward and look deeper at the gifts that they bring. Take those who are marginalized, perhaps a young teen with a low IQ, or a woman who all you see is a diagnosis, or the poor elderly man who happens to be fragrant. Or who in your life do you normally look away from, scorn, or even judge? Is it the fundamentalist, the political radical? the religious fanatic, the transgender. These are the very people God wants us to see, not the way humans typically see, but the way God sees in the heart. They have something to teach us. A helpful way to do this is, as Michael has taught me the phrase, to see everyone as a soul. To see everyone as a soul. Everyone has a story. Stephen Covey gives a really good example of this in one of his books. He's talking about when he goes on a Sunday morning, he's riding a subway train. And typically on a subway train on Sunday morning, it's very quiet. People are reading the newspaper, their eyes are shut, they're thinking, 
pensively. Anyway, a father and young children come onto the subway train, and the children begin running around and throwing things and yelling and disturbing. And Covey could tell there was a shift on the train, and other people, passengers, were getting disturbed. So finally, he says as patiently as possible, Sir, your children are disturbing others. Do you think you could control them a little more? At which point the man comes out of what seems to be a stupor and says, Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I suppose you're right. You see, we just came from the hospital where their mother died an hour ago. I don't know what to do, and I guess they don't either. Everyone has a story. Everyone is a soul. Mark's gospel has another apt reminder that I love. The kingdom of God is like the tiniest seed you can imagine. A seed that disappears into the soil and produces effects you cannot dream of based on outward appearance. Effects that in the end you don't even understand. Friends, part of our work and practice in becoming kingdom people is, as I said, it's learning how to see. It's a practice. And what both of these texts teach us is to look deeper. Look at something a different way. Unearth it. Try it at a different angle, a way you weren't looking before. Find somebody else to look at it for you, to see what they see. Isn't it fascinating that the outward appearance gives us the least amount of information, and yet we lean on it the most? The seed that is so tiny that holds all the DNA it needs to grow into a huge tree, you would have no idea, looking at that seed, what it could become. Perhaps we need to start looking deeper Asking, what would surprise me? Recognizing our blind spots. I think this is a huge part of our spiritual practice of learning to see, is realizing our blind spots. And I think it takes having a soul friend, a companion, that you can really ask, what is it I'm not seeing? We need people like that in our lives. We need community to practice discernment and seeing. Which, of course, is finally what this prayer and discernment group is about, is learning how to see as a church. Because we take that for granted. But typically, our sight becomes what is visible to the eyes. I want to close with one of my friends from the Sabbath House Retreat Center in Bryson City has taught me. And I shared this with you a couple years ago, but it's so apropos, I wanted to share it again. Rachel says this, One of my brothers is a professional artist, and if I do say so, a talented one. He's a very good with paints like oil, watercolor, and acrylics, but his uniqueness is in sculpting wood. Not just any wood, but heart pine that he finds in forests, rivers, and streams. And if you've been to the Sabbath house, which I highly recommend, some of those pieces are up there. 
One day, she asked her brother Larry, what is the most important thing you must teach someone who wants to paint or sculpt? He responded quickly, I have to teach them to see. He continued his answer by saying that almost everyone has eyes with which to see, but few people really see what they're looking at. That's the heart of it. Years have gone by since he made these comments, but I return to his words from time to time when I suddenly see something that's been in my field of vision all along. I'm amazed often by what I see, but I'm also amazed frequently by what I've not seen that suddenly registers in my brain. And then I'm reminded of Jesus' words. Those who have eyes to see, let them see. Providence, those who have eyes to see, let us see as we continue the journey of becoming kingdom people. Amen.